curated by Future Forum. This is part two of the 20 Minute City podcast. A little longer than 20 minutes, a conversation with some interesting people at the intersection between their sense of well-being and the city we live in. Welcome to season two. I'm Dino Vrignos, creative director of Future Forum, architect and director of Dust Studio. Over this eight-part series, we're going to introduce you to some inspiring young people charting a course forward here in South Australia and beyond. The movers and shakers, the innovators and disruptors, the elite performers and the unicorn makers. They will share their story, their trials, tribulations and triumphs. And we'll have a bit of fun the way to Hey, I'm Eloise Hall. I am Managing Director and Co-Founder of Taboo. Eloise's story is an uplifting one, a story that forces you to lift your eyes to the horizon and consider what a better version of the world might look like. Eloise's get-it-done attitude and genuine pursuit for creating more equitable and sustainable communities has seen her and her mate Izzy create a social enterprise, Taboo, to eradicate period poverty. And at just 23 years of age, at the start of her journey, Eloise's approach to life and understanding of what it means to lead is worth learning from. And with that, let's get started. Where we must, at the beginning. Our 20 minutes starts now. We just want to understand about things to do with the history of who and why you are and, and how that's gone to making you the person that you are and the endeavours that you're currently undertaking. But within that, I guess we'd love to hear about how Adelaide fits into that story and also your own journey um, around mental health and well-being and how that's an important part of who and what you are. I guess we can start with who made me, which is my parents. Uh, 24 years ago, my dad is a used car dealer and owns his own car yard. My mum is a teacher and has always really valued education. Um, it's been a very much reminded to me throughout my whole childhood and yeah, I spent a, a lot of my youth kind of finding solutions to problems and I had a little invention book actually. I had um, some inventions scribbled down. I learned that sausage dogs got bad back pain because their backs were so long. So I invented this set of wheels that can strap to their ribs and hold their spine up as they <laughs> walk down the street. <laughs> yeah, I had a few weird ones. I actually won Year 6 Elephant Science Awards for a, a sock invention because my feet were so cold as a kid. I invented a heat pack but in socks. So you put your socks in the microwave because they have heat packs sewn into them. And then you have cold feet no more. That was the title of it. Uh, and we won first prize. And the guy that won second prize did a whole prototype uh, water hydration kind of system. And he was impressive and he was really pissed off that his pair of socks won. <laughs> Anyway, that was that was me as a kid. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I've always I've just um, always been inspired by innovation. Really, always looking for ways to um, improve things. I was always in the garden with dad as a kid, um, and even at school, I I always found myself challenging a lot of the status quo's and um, wanting to find solutions to problems. I am. Like a lot of other millennials, really lucky in that I was brought into a home where I had a roof and I had an education. I had everything I needed. Um, I always think, uh, I guess, my nature of philanthropy or wanting to 
use my education and my privilege for other people has come from privilege because I, I didn't have to necessarily look after my own um, needs because I was really lucky and I had parents to do that for me. And that really inspired, I think, the stages and the steps I took straight after high school. So uh, I really loved my education. Uh, I was very acutely aware of how privileged I was. Mum would remind me about how much my education costs every week. <laughs> and um, that, I think, just made me really aware that I had a responsibility to do something with that education for someone other than myself. And it was in year 12 where Taboo, my um, brainchild that I co-created with Izzy Marshall, um, the co-founder of Taboo, we developed that idea in high school and she had a very similar understanding of, I guess, her privilege and the expectation that comes with that. And it was inspired by the social enterprise design. We were hosting a charity fundraiser at the time and we went to a, a leadership conference where Daniel Flynn spoke. He founded Thank You Water and he introduced the social enterprise model. Like I sell bottled water and all the profits that we make from selling that water goes into finding um, clean and accessible water for people around the world because so many people were dying of waterborne diseases that were preventable. And it was just so – it was like this awesome ticket of we can make such a big difference without rattling a tin can. We don't have to ask people for their extra cash or money. We can sell people something that they're going to buy anyway and use the profit that we make through those sales to create the change we want to see. Um, and, yeah, we kind of led into a, a rabbit hole of understanding what period poverty looks like as well. Um, we were – we were young, we'd been bleeding for a few years and we thought, gosh, this is expensive. Like what do women do on the street who can't afford food, let alone pads? Um, and yeah, I guess one thing led to another. We started understanding how many girls were not going to school because they couldn't access period products. And then we understood that the market in Australia was worth so much money. So it was quite um, obvious to us to start selling a product um, in this really rich market and then use that profit to create change and um, embed equality into our social constructs but through pads which is um, yeah really powerful which was maybe surprising to us at the start. That was five years ago now um, or six years ago since we had the idea and straight after high school we just went from mentor to mentor um, and then really just took it step by step it being starting a business that we'd never done before we had no idea how to find manufacturers or anything but we figured it out um so yeah we definitely needed that just get it done attitude which we had um we didn't think too heavily into what we could or couldn't do according to what our very slim resume said and um just worked it out honestly I started uni so it's nice to have a kind of theoretical understanding of what you're doing as well as a practical one it's been really helpful and validating, if anything. Um, and again, just still so thankful for my education. And I've got three more subjects left. <laughs> I'm excited for that to be over. That's really where I am now. We've got four employees at Taboo, myself included, two part-time. Yeah. We're going to take a breather and we'll be right back for the rest of our chat with Eloise. In all we do, we strive for better. Better processes. Better relationships. Better outcomes. We challenge convention. And refuse to accept the way it is. 
as the way it should be. We are generous with our time and with each other because we believe that giving is better than taking. And what do we do? Well, we are makers. Makers of spaces. Makers of solutions. Makers of joy. Making a difference to make every day better. At Dust Studio, we make better. So, we've heard Eloise's story, and now we'll talk about the power of empathy to transform communities, and that leadership can take many forms. So it's great, obviously, to hear the story. It's amazing for someone, to be honest, so young to have it so together and have such conviction and appetite to do something good. How much do you think that is a mix of, obviously, your background and, I guess, you know, we are definitely a product of our parents and our environment. I get that. In terms of the environment part, talking about a place like Adelaide, how much has this place shaped and influenced and contributed to what you're doing now? I often think that people, innovators, creatives, entrepreneurs, you really do need a considerable amount of safety to feel that you can create change and impact um, and be creative in that design as well because it's a high-risk environment. So if you don't feel that you it's safe enough to take a risk, you won't take the risk. And Adelaide is its where all of well my roots have been embedded but it's also a place that felt small enough that I knew there was support every corner of whatever, whichever direction the company needed to take. Um, there was someone there to support us. So we'd go from one mentor and that mentor would say, oh, actually, it's not my area of expertise, but I know this guy. It's very well connected in that way. That's quick to find advice that you might not know you need at the time. And it was it's big enough that we've been able to grow significantly that it's, it's, um, it's, it's proven that it'll work. So if your idea works in Adelaide, it works anywhere, that old sentiment. Um, yeah, it was really nice to know that this was the hard, hard place to get it going. And it went, um, I guess the, the foundations of the company were in one way easy to make because we just trusted the space that we were in and we had enough, um, I guess, yeah, we had it. We had safety nets in place to spread our idea and tell people and and feel safe that no one's going to rip it off or you know take advantage of you uh, because we had just surrounded ourselves in a supportive environment. Yeah, it's it's just been a really beautiful incubator, I think, for how far we've come in a pr- pretty short space of time. And continuing on that that thinking about the connectiveness and ability to find mentors. I mean, you mentioned there's a story about the Thank You Water experience, but are there any other people that have been really instrumental in shaping what has happened? Yeah. Our first mentor was um, a man called Mike Chalmers. He was a school friend's dad and um, a social entrepreneur himself. And it was quite cool to go through the social entrepreneurship journey with him because he had been a, I guess, traditional entrepreneur to start with and has now branched into social initiatives. And yeah, he was probably a mentor that we can thank the most because he's also someone that connected us to so many other people. So we've had a whole range of um, yeah expertise and, and so many people have been generous with their time. So we definitely have th- him to thank for, I guess, caring for our idea in the first place. And yeah, answering those big questions early days of 
How do we even have a conversation with the manufacturer? What questions do we ask? You know, there are so many pieces of information that you can really only get from experience. So just knowing that you could speak to three odd people and have their stories um, shared with you to understand exactly how you'll navigate that conversation, such a valuable kind of opportunity that we still really need. I'd be really interested to understand, Has have you always maintained that level of optimism and positivity around it? Have there been moments where you're like, oh, fuck this, it's like it's too hard or like does it just seem to continually be building and you're getting like that reinforcement that this can work? I feel like with an idea that you're so passionate about and so I guess to put context into place, Taboo is a registered um, organisation that sells product like anyone else. So we sell pads and tampons in Australia and as a social enterprise, all of our profits as a company are going into our mission to eradicate period poverty. So in its design itself, it's quite bold. And a lot of people said, well, surely you want to take a percentage for yourself. You know, that's just how business works. Like it's investment and you, you deserve that profit and whatnot. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that design. But the excitement we have is that the social enterprise model is a way of also reshifting our wealth distribution and making the world a better place. I get paid as it's my job and the profit that the company generates is invested into creating change for people who are really unable to access, well, in our case, menstrual health products. That that company design was where we experienced the greatest force of resistance from our mentors because it was the thing that, was, that typical business mentors were so uncomfortable with. And learning where our, our um, I guess, boundaries sat, which was very close, you know, we after pulling apart people's advice, we just, at the end of the day, every time went back to, no, it has to be 100%. Like, this doesn't feel right. It's not why we're doing it. Um, once we kind of sat in, in defiance of that, it was um, a lot easier to stick to your guns and just you have to remind yourself that when you're wanting to create change, you almost always have to create your own pathways because if you tread along other pathways, then change isn't going to happen. I feel like especially young entrepreneurs, they know they actually just need to stick with their guns. And if it's especially embedded in social missions and it's not about your own personal reward, then you're probably on the right track because that is often the change that needs to happen when it's disconnected from, I guess, your own profit or your own reward. I, yeah, probably have my sisters to thank for giving me that space to challenge the things that made me uncomfortable or to bounce things off of. And they gave me a lot of clarity of, well, that's just the way the world is or, yeah, that's really unjust and unfair and, of course, it's valid to feel that way. And they also gave me the safety to come up with ideas and find ways to change that reality. You've got a very strong why you're doing what you're doing. Do you think that that's something that you've always had? And do you think it's something that you see and this is putting on the spot as the youngest person, increasingly something that's more prevalent within your generation, you know, the, you're now called Zillennials, that's what you're called, not even Millennials. Oh, that's fun. Zillennials. But yes, has it always been there? And is that very much the secret sauce? I feel like this is a question for my mum, maybe. <laughs> like, have I always been like this? It might come back to the fact that I was born into a home that wasn't in poverty, really. Like, I lived with a roof and had food in my belly. Like no one's life's perfect. I had my fair share of things to work out, but as does everyone. And I think 
if anything, I was always really aware of the fact that I was just as human as everyone else. And that's in its in practicality, it bleeds into this passion and pursuit of equality because it's so unfair and unjust and it has always aggravated me. And I remember actually in year 10, I had this moment in like a lunch or a recess. I was talking to a friend and I was just so angry to the point of tears that I had and I had the education that I did. It just actually made me so angry because I, why do I deserve this? And someone else didn't get that opportunity. And I was like ready to like leave school. And it was definitely at the forefront of my mind. And it just took me a while then to realize that, no, it's actually my responsibility. It's actually not something you can be angry and feel like, you know, you don't deserve it. For whatever reason, that's your hand of cards. And now it's your hand of cards to use. And that's why I'm really passionate about the social enterprise model, because I can see that as the structural trickle effect of framing this world as a more equal place, because um, unfortunately, it's just not an equal playing field. You can be as the most brilliant person on the planet, but be born into a community that just doesn't have an opportunity for you and no one will ever understand your brilliance. So, yeah, we just need to keep reminding ourselves that we all deserve equality and we're all as human as each other. Now that you guys are starting to establish yourselves and starting to broaden your reach, is Adelaide a, a long-term home? Do you think you can continue to work from Adelaide and does it provide, yeah, the environment for you to have the biggest possible impact? Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to stay stay around. Um, it's a wonderful place for Taboo to be in its position. We're about to kind of scale up and we still very much need that connectivity and we need that um, market space that we understand and, and can really work in intentionally. We've got an awesome office in the city, so it's really wonderful to be so central and, and some really great talent as well. The birds included. I mean, <laughs> they're gorgeous. But uh, it's big enough that we can really facilitate the national spread of taboo from this state. And it's also really wonderful how connected we are with a lot of philanthropic and charity notions as well. So it's really great being in Adelaide connecting with um, and I know it sounds far away, but we have such connections and great relationships with people in Alice Springs and Darwin. And we're working with a lot of Indigenous rural health services and um, other kind of community initiatives. Being in Adelaide is a really great point of call for a lot of those services. A lot of them are based in Adelaide and then we'll travel through to the AP Wildlands, for example. Yeah, I'd be really interested to understand that a little bit more too in terms of obviously there's the core business of generating the profit. What is some of the stuff that you're looking to deploy that into now? At the moment, we've got a pad it forward model. So a heap of people are buying our pads on behalf of other people and then we redistribute that product around the country. And it was actually my boyfriend's mum's idea. She was like, well, I don't need your product anymore. Can I buy it for someone else? And uh, we're like, okay, sure. So she really instigated the idea. Um, we've got, I think, about 80 people subscribing to our pads and we've donated more than 2,000 boxes of pads and tampons to people at risk of period poverty in Australia and period poverty even though it sounds like something that is so foreign from Australia it's um, really prominent here and anyone who's living 
below the poverty line or in other complex living scenarios could be at risk of period poverty. And yeah, we just partner with organisations who are looking after these people already and ensure they've got good access to menstrual health care and education. Is there a hope to use the platform that you're creating for yourself to broaden the discussion? Oh, big time. Yeah. Um, I talk about periods all day, every day. And to people that might not expect that discussion to happen in their day, when people are shocked about conversations like that, it reminds me of how far we have to go. It's a very human biological experience that really is we have to thank for the existence of our human race. No one would be alive without a period, but we all feel very disconnected from it. And um, it's still so stigmatized and the stigma is leading to period poverty. And it's crazy how much a conversation can make an impact. Um, The conversation has picked up on a national scale and all of a sudden our state governments are recognizing they should supply product to their students. Like, wow, imagine having access to period products as a young person. It's actually like life-changing. So as someone who's personally um, now responsible for other people's livelihoods, I'd be really interested to understand how you take care of yourself in terms of your own health and well-being. Yeah, it's a great question and I'm still very much working it out. I'm very new to the title of being an employer. That's terrifying. I was just making a joke how like I was just processing our pays recently and I was like, of course I feel stressed about this. <laughs> like I'm in control of not only like the financial security of the company, but also myself and like I, I, you know, pay myself and other people and, and you know, yeah, it's terrifying. Um, I'm still very much understanding how to manage that stress. Um, I often just have to trust other people's judgment, but I really have the most wonderful friends and I've been really intentional in surrounding myself with really great people and just communicating that stress to someone and then, um, being involved in community things, being a part of human nature as a collective rather than as as an individual is such a brilliant reminder that it's actually all going to be okay and the responsibility of feeling is valid and it's good that you are stressed sometimes because it means you care. Um, I think it was Gandhi maybe, someone really impressive, um, said that the, the best leaders we have are not in leadership because they know the responsibility they hold. And whenever I feel really uh, threatened by my own stress, I remind myself that it actually probably makes me a good leader because it means that I care and it also means that I know the responsibility that I have. To be fair, you're not really too far into the journey, all things considered. So I think it's a bit unfair to ask this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Would you have done anything differently today? No, no, because every big decision we made, we really walked in there with uh, a naive but hopeful and optimistic hat we've just always been looking forward to learn so you can't ever be regretful of learning beautiful and so with that in mind would you have told your younger self to do anything differently uh no i would have kept her in the dark because <laughs> like you're gonna figure that out at your own time and I am excited about what I have to figure out ahead of me as well. And obviously, you've got a particularly strong, big idea, but is there anything else outside of what you're doing with Taboo that you're turning your eyes to or has got, got a bit of a burning sort of interest in? I really want the world to embrace social enterprise. It's the way that I see the planet becoming an equal place. It's the way that we can redistribute our wealth. It's the way that we can do that sustainably. And it's not an anti-capitalist sentiment, but it's actually redesigning uh, our consumer behaviour to 
play the equal game. Yeah, it really just pulls apart the fact that wealth at the moment attracts wealth. We can really redesign how, yeah, our spending habits can create change and literally with a flick of a switch. So we just need to start communicating the practicality of social enterprise. I'm so excited for that to happen. It's going to save the planet. (laughs) Yes, to save the planet. Louise, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Eloise for sharing her story and taking us through her city. If you'd like to find out more about Eloise and the businesses she leads, you can do that at tabooau.co. 20 Minute City is a podcast series created by Future Forum in collaboration with Dash Studio and City Mag. If 20 minutes isn't enough, head to future-forum.com.au for more from the people who make Adelaide better. In our next instalment, we chat with Luca Parry, CEO of The Learning Future. There is no interim approach is also some way that I try to live my life. Rather than thinking, oh, this is just, this is a holding pattern. What what I've discovered is I just end up waiting to live my life. I think all of us do. It's the arrival fallacy, right? When we arrive, then we'll be happy. Or when we have enough, then we'll be enough, right? Just like that, our time is up. 20 Minute City has been produced on Ghana Country.